Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. Today, my guest is Anand Srinivasan, climate expert at CoreLogic, to talk about climate risk models and why choosing the wrong one could actually increase a lender's risk profile. Anand, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Really excited about this conversation. So we want to talk about climate risk models, right? Obviously, climate risk models are a good thing. But what is the risk in a lender choosing the wrong kind of model? Look, the outcome of choosing the wrong kind of model is um, you get bad data. And in a data-driven economy, having clear, crisp, and most importantly, accurate data helps you form better decisions. Without data, it's garbage in, garbage out. What are some of the elements that make um, you know a model more accurate? So there are several aspects of it, and, and I think this is a very important question we need to address. Number one is all the quantitative and the science aspects of the model. You need to validate those independently. One is that, is the model peer-reviewed? Has it been tested by an authoritative body of that governs that particular science? Is the science peer-reviewed? Is the methodology using methodology of science used in constructing the model and in extrapolating the the results? Is that peer reviewed? Has that been? Um, uh, is there a model review committee internally and through peers or uh, with an industry body that governs um, all of that? So that's one aspect of the model creation itself, where scientists are involved in looking through the model. Uh, poking and prodding it a little bit, both at the construction of the input level as well as the output level. The second aspect is the data, right? So you want to have a representative data set with which you are able to um, both train the model as well as um, uh, use the model for extrapolative data. So uh, data needs to be structured or uh, carefully curated in order to be able to um, give you the right results, and then, <clears throat> and then um, uh, the the third aspect of it is: um, Have you been testing it against historical? Um, uh, are you doing back testing? If this model and data were applied to a past, and given that we have actual data to compare it with, how would this model have done? Um, so that's that's another aspect that you want to you want to study. Um, and then the the last aspect of the of the of the model analysis is to make sure that you in fact go through all of the steps associated with that science and with the data, uh, whether it is analysis of probability, for example, whether it's uh, determinative deterministic versus probabilistic. You have to look through all of those pieces so that when you do produce a result you are clearly articulating how that model and that data should be considered as part of your um, uh, insights. Where do you feel like um, the the hardest part of that or the part that might be overlooked or the hardest to know from looking from the outside? Because obviously companies don't want to use bad models. So if they have chosen one, like where do you think it falls down? So, so there are several pieces. Look, climate risk analytics is a, is a deep 
as well as a wide science, right? So in our minds, the way that uh, we construct the model, and uh, we're not saying we're the authority, but we are definitely an open um, system where people can come and look at our models and look at how we've constructed them and see um, all of the goodness as well as any biases that may be there. But either way, we are open to uh, for our scientists for our model to look at. So there are four very distinct aspects that are uh, our models take into consideration. One is the data. So in order to be able to do um, uh, justice to climate risk, you have to have solid data, both uh, from a location perspective, as well as from a structure perspective, as well as from an intrinsic um, value perspective. And only then can you apply climate science to it to say, okay, how is this going to change over time? So you have to have a base level of of what the where where the affected peril is is um, is happening. Number one, what is it happening to? Number two, and number three, how are we going to study the effect of that? In our minds, that is physical damage, and as a result of that, the losses associated with that physical damage, given that our base value is the replacement value, right? So we have all of those pieces. Um, but to answer your question in a terribly long-winded way, Sarah, we think that there are inherent sort of weaknesses in all aspects of it, right? So one is the application of the IPCC data, right? So one of the things that occurs is the IPCC data on climate is very, very coarse. So in order to make it fine, you have to downscale the data. And in doing the downscaling, you can't use brute force and regression to downscale the climate model, you have to have actual physics behind it, a process we call as dynamical downscaling. So statistical downscaling has a place, but uh, dynamical downscaling actually takes into account the uh, physics parameters that go in uh, of weather at the course level and translate that effectively, downscale that effectively to a finer level. So that's one area where we think the uh, a lot of the uh, models sort of are, are weaker in our in our minds. The second aspect is on the perils. Is um, you have to be able to take that downscale data, um, and while temperature and surface level, uh, sea level rise, etc., are good parameters, you have to be able to translate that into what the impact is for perils. Why do severe convective storms get stronger or weaker or more frequent as a result of this particular climate phenomenon happening. You have to be able to articulate that both in terms of frequency as well as severity and a, a process we call surface modeling. You have to be able to take the climate data that is coarse and downscale it to the peril impact, which is rather fine. So, so that's an area where we think that if you miss out on perils, you have to have all the perils covered. You can't just say, I do flood or I choose to do fire. I miss out on earthquake and I miss out on winter storm. Oops. Well, that's not good enough. You have to have the gamut of all the perils that cover uh, the uh, region that you're talking about. So that's point number two. Point number three is on specificity. Most models take into account location, but they don't take into account the uh, subject on which the impact is uh, occurring to, right? So a house, 
there's dramatically different impact of the same weather phenomenon on a, on a wood frame house versus a cement construction, right? Um, on a house that was built in 1993 following Hurricane Andrew, after which um, there was incredible strengthening uh, requirement in, in the state of Florida or in a fire-resistant home in California. So those are all impacts that you have to take into account in order to say this peril impacted this house to this degree, right? So that's an area where I think that, you know, to your point earlier, if there's bad data, the insight you're going to draw from it is weak. Um, and then the last part is you got to talk turkey, right? You, It's very nice to have a score, right? On a one to six score, this is your number, A through F, this is your letter, or a one to 100. For us, it's all about impact in terms of monetary loss. So once you construct losses and you distribute that losses across probabilities, across various perils, over time, over climate scenarios, you rank order those losses. And that rank ordering becomes the score. You don't do it the other way around, right? So in our minds, these are the four building blocks. And in each case, a lot of the models have weaknesses in each of those. And what we at CoreLogic are trying to do is strive to make sure that each of these building blocks from our perspective is as fine as possible, high resolution as possible, as complete as possible, and as accurate as possible. And that's what we're striving to do. And we hope the industry takes that into account when considering how climate risk impacts a particular property. So I've been to your Discovery Center and gotten to see the layers of data that you have on properties. Can you give us an idea? So for someone who hasn't been through that, give us an idea of the granularity of your data on a given property. We, uh, so that's a fantastic question. And I'm glad you had a fun time at the Discovery Center. Um, one of the uh, most interesting things is we take pride on the fact that our data covers 99.99% of properties and our the number of data points for every uh, property that we have is exceeds 200. And then we have reams and reams of derived data that is based on that foundation of, uh, of data. So a good example would be is we were the uh, sole source data provider of um, first floor height uh, to a large emergency management agency in the United States. Um, and for all um 200 or so million structures in the United States, we have a mapping of what the first floor height is. That's particularly important because it's a key driver of what your flood risk might be. So even between two houses that are geolocated right next to one another, one is six inches taller than the other, one six inches higher place than the other, then it has dramatically lower flood risk versus the other. Right. So that's a very uh, it's a it's a data point that we had to create. Uh, but now that we have it, it's remarkably useful in a whole lot of places that we wouldn't have thought it had any value. But now it's coming in super handy. Another good example of this is replacement cost value. Right. So replacement cost value is, again, a, a core logic specific metric that identifies what it would take to reconstruct your house Um um, two by four by two by four, um, uh, by panel by panel for every um, inch of that property. And that's dramatically different in one part of the country versus another. 
I just moved from New Jersey to California, and I can assure you the services and the cost of labor and materials um, are dramatically different in these two states. So we have an, an ultra-localized version of replacement cost value. What it would take to replace your house in your zip code using your construction and the material type of your house. And that's very valuable for our insurance company clients so that they know when, if God forbid, uh, there were a calamity to your house, what it would cost to replace that entire unit. And that's a very specific thing. And so when we measure risk, that is our notion of intrinsic value. And that's what we measure risk against. It, that's wild. I mean, do you do you know how many sources of data you even have or, you know, give us give us an idea of how many layers of data you have or how many sources of data you have? So we we have supply chains of data that are um, incredible. Our, our um, um, smart data platform, as we call it, is funneled by public sources of data um, self-created sources of data, as well as uh, private data providers from other um, uh, other parts of the industry ecosystem that we bring in. So we have over 200 data points for every single um, home in the United States or every single parcel in the United States. And that in many cases is comes in from multiple sources. And for sometimes for the same data source, we have multiple providers just to cross match that. And not only that, for each as the as the parcel and the structure gets transacted, that creates more data, and we validate that data along multiple points of the ecosystem. So, if a house is sold, it has to have multiple touch points from the um, uh, listing agent to the buying agent to the uh, appropriate zoning or the building office to appropriate tax authority, um, and all of those points create more data. And we have um, we have a repository within our smart data platform, and all of this data. To answer your second question, which is the layers of data, so everything from geospatial to structure type to financial information associated with that house to climate risk associated with that house to the lien that's sitting on top of the property to the neighborhood on the um, uh, neighborhood of that particular location to all of the external uh, data points that surround the house, not associated with it, but surround that house, all of those data points. And some of this data is numbers and letters. That's great. Some of it is images. Um, and we have multiple sources of data, multiple types of data. And it's really cool to see the unit of property in the Discovery Center, as you saw. And you can see these stacked tiles growing from ground level all the way to climate, all the way to liens, all the way to the financial uh, picture of the house. So it's pretty neat. I think what surprised me was how granular the risk is because, and that's why the, the data has to be so granular. So you guys showed us like, uh, we put in several of our addresses just to see. And even within on the same street, you could have different risk because of the way the land moves, the way they've improved the property, something in the backyard, um, what it's made out of. It, it was, it's crazy to me because you think, oh, okay, well, you could just like, uh, in this zip code, say, this is the risk for that zip code. But the granularity you get, I mean, a zip code is so, you you don't even do just everything, you know, on the same street. It's like structure by structure. Absolutely. Look, granularity matters. Uh, we, we believe in granularity at scale. Um, in fact, FEMA does as well. 
because risk rating 2.0, the rating system that they are transitioning to, uh, from the special flood ha- hazard area system that they have now, the binary one zero, are you in the flood zone? Are you out of it? To more of a gradation of risk of flood, depending on how far uh, you are from the body of water and the, in some cases matters. And we believe that level of specificity matters not only for flood, not only for fire, but for all the risks. So everything from severe convective storm to winter storm to flood to all different types of flood to fire to uh, earthquake, all of those have, they come in gradations. So it's important to be able to measure the entire spectrum of it. Um, And that risk is driven by location, is driven by the type of structure that you have, and several factors that are, by the way, different for different risks, right? So what matters for one risk is inconsequential to another. Um, and, And vice versa, particularly if you take Earthquake versus fire versus flood. They're dramatically, dramatically different perils. So the inputs that go into assessing that peril uh, are dramatically different. And the type of structure and how the structure is impacted by that peril is also different. Um, so it is not, it's unfair that, um, it is not unfair that you can judge a house one and house two on the same street, 10, 20, 30 meters apart. Uh, that have different risk profiles. I think we we all should aspire to getting to that level where uh, they are judged separately on their own merits. When it comes to climate change, it's hard to know the impact it's going to have on our planet, let alone your portfolio. Climate Risk Analytics by CoreLogic will help you make consistent decisions from the national scale all the way down to individual properties. You can even assess projected losses for every structure in the continental United States with financial figures, actual numbers, not arbitrary letter grades. So one day when regulators ask how resilient your business is in the face of climate risk, be ready with Climate Risk Analytics by CoreLogic. Learn more at corelogic.com slash climate risk. You know, what are some examples of how the wrong model could lead to a bad assessment of risk? Like when you think about that, what comes to mind? Look, the problem with um, the climate risk analytics assessments dramatically um, into the future is that it is a probabilistic assessment, right? So there's no denying that. But just as you can make a small shift today and have it have a dramatic impact in the out years. Similarly, making a small error on a model today, when you widen the scope of it, leads to magnified mistakes in the future. And that could be in each of these four pillars that I mentioned. What if you're off by 1%? Well, when you start putting 30 years on that 1% error, it becomes pretty dramatic. And that applies to um, individual perils, oops, I forgot a peril, oops, I don't have a peril, right? So that's not acceptable because that's not a full picture of risk. Um, Or um, you didn't consider the uh, building type into account. That's, again, not acceptable because you are judging me based on my neighbor's house or uh, some sort of a stock assessment of what a house should be in that particular area. That's not fair because I've taken time and effort to uh, bolster my house, and I ought to be penalized or rewarded for the efforts I have taken. Um, or if you 
make base assumptions, uh, improper ones, particularly on the financials of the house, whether it's replacement cost value, whether it's valuation, et cetera, those have dramatic impact. The climate um, um, scenarios automatically come very coarse. Uh, they're provided to you at a very coarse level. How do you downscale them matters an incredible amount because you have to use physics to downscale it, not regression models or not exclusively regression models. Um, so in areas where you are off even by a little bit and there's plenty of places to go wrong, these mistakes get magnified internally and over time. So when you have that sort of situation, it's particularly important to pay attention to details because if you make assumptions, especially uh, poor ones or lax ones, or sort of you paint a common brush over uh, over an area, it leads to pretty drastic um, results on the other end. And sometimes that leads to fear mongering on part of the uh, modeler, and that's not fair. Those are really good insights. You know, you you talked about how different perils have different risks. Is it is it fair? What if someone could someone build a good model just on one peril? So say like all we do is flood or whatever, um, or is that insufficient because of the way that other perils are going to affect the risk? So that's a very good point. So the 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 impact is one of the impacts is you have to take into account how one peril affects the other, right? So for example, we have we, we call them parent perils and children perils. Um, and there is when it, whenever there's an earthquake, there's multiple perils that occur after. So there's the shake part. Usually after an earthquake shake, there's usually a fire that follows. Um, and if you're in a, in a coastal area, one of the things that could happen very easily, particularly if it's a um, high magnitude earthquake, is that there's also a tsunami. Um so these are impacts, and sometimes you may be subject to only one thing, such as the fire following or the tsunami, without the shake. Um, so it's important to understand all of these different aspects of it. So if you model earthquake, for example, um, you have to be able to model these children perils. Um, the other part of it is, um, similarly, on the other coast, if you want to look at it that way, is the impact of wind versus uh, flooding. Right. So how you think about one versus the other impacts, which one does more damage? What are you more resistant to? Right. So if you're more resistant, so if your house was built after 1993 in Florida and your uh, impact to hurricane winds or you're resistant to hurricane winds, but you're not uh, resistant to flood, then uh, it depends on how far inland you are and how subject to um, water uh, you are relative to wind. So those kinds of factors taken into account need to take, need to be taken into account. So if you do one peril um, of a certain kind and you ignore the other, you run the risk of the correlation impact of the perils. Yeah, your description of the um, potential earthquake it, it reminds me of the movie San Andreas. Is <laughs> peril upon peril? I'm like, ah, I have I have a, a daughter that lives in California, and I'm like, no, it's terrible. But um, it's an interesting thing to think about how one peril affects another. And if a company is just paying for, say, like I want to model on flood, um, how that could get them in trouble. Absolutely, you're missing out. Would you? You know, drive on a highway without without access to one of your one one part of the reflection of your uh, rearview mirror. One set of mirrors. Would you drive only on using one set of mirrors? Of course not. 
Um, but at the same time, having a holistic picture of perils also helps you in another way, which is that it, one of the founds, one of the things that we found with climate risk analytics is that it is it is not 100% intuitive. And as a result, when you see your list of perils for a particular property, the the mitigation aspects of it. So if you say, okay, I am now first step measure, you are aware of your risk. Second step, you model the risk to see how much of an impact you're going to have on your property. The third part is the mitigation. But this is the third M, right? Maybe from a financial perspective, the other risks are so low in probability and the impact from a dollar perspective is so low that if you just attacked one peril and help mitigate one peril for this particular property, you've solved 80% of the problem, right? So it's important to not fearmonger on this and do a deep insight and understand what it is you're taking into account. Um, but it is also, in order to be able to do that, you have to know all the perils because you don't know which one's going to impact you the most. Are properties in some areas of the country more prone to be inaccurate based on the model? That's a very good question. Certain perils are more difficult to model, uh, for sure. Um, uh, some um, construction just given by the aggressive nature of movement to some parts of the country, there is sort of um, amplifying effect of the human population sort of density growth in that particular area, which could have other impacts or repercussions uh, from a peril perspective. Um, but I don't want to, the, the more we dive into uh, perils and the construction, I don't, I don't know if there's an inherent bias per se, but I think just more aggressive growth in some areas versus um, others, um, maybe the data collection needs to be faster in those aggressive growth areas that could lead to some blind spots. But generally speaking, I would say that more uh, severe the monetary impact then um, is is that's the way we measure the peril, right? So if the monetary impact is is high, then we consider that peril to be quote unquote more dangerous from a structure perspective. Um, and as a result, um, because of the type of structure and because of the density of the structures, the chances of loss to be higher um, is higher in more densely populated states. So Florida, Miami is a good example where you have seen some rapid growth to the area. You've seen um, property prices skyrocket, but the intrinsic value necessarily hasn't gone up, gone up to the same degree, but insurance risk is continuing to rise because the threat of natural hazards to Florida hasn't gone away. You've just put more buildings there. And as a result of the natural hazard risk, you are you have more value at stake. Uh, so my last question is, you know, you've you've made a good case for what kind of uh, climate risk model you have and how granular it is and, you know, that this is really important. But I guess the question is, you know, how how can lenders who, you know, it's not like they probably went to, uh, you know, school for this. How can lenders vet their climate risk models? What should they be looking for? In each of these. So first of all, you I think you have to assess if the modeler of record, the risk um, tool of record provides you information on perils? Does it provide you information on property data? Does it provide you information that is financially relevant? And then you can overlay the climate risk on it to produce um, 
an event set, a stochastic event set that varies each of the other three based on the type of climate impact that it's going to have. Um, I think that if you apply a rather coarse um, model to a fine data set, your results are going to be coarse. If you apply a coarse data set to a, another co a coarse model to another coarse data set, your results are going to be uh, coarser. Um, it's important to have um, a fine-tuned model and um, um, a highly high-resolution data set, and you can expect better results. I'm not saying that it's going to give you a perfect answer, but you will have better insight and answers than you would have had before. This has been a really great conversation. Anand, thank you so much for coming by and, and giving us your insight on something that's really important and I think is just rising in importance. You know, we see this, um, we see more risks coming. We see more um, insurance companies really looking at these risks and deciding where they're going to insure people. So thanks for, for jumping in and uh, explaining this to us. Thanks for uh, discussing the topic. We're really passionate about it and uh, thanks for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show or leave a comment. We'll see you back here on Monday for more news and insight.